Well, good morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, where we're going to be studying this morning. And I want to say if you are a guest today, uh, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here. Uh, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christ follower. Maybe you're kind of checking things out. Maybe you're a kind of a skeptic. Uh, if you're new here for any reason, uh, I want you to know what we're doing and where we're going in our times of teaching. We've uh, been working our way through this New Testament book called Acts for a number of weeks, actually since last fall with a couple of breaks along the way. We plan to be here for a couple of more months. And maybe you'll wonder why we would spend so much time to study just one book. And the answer very simply is we want uh, to know what we're supposed to be doing as a church. And Acts is actually the history of the early church. And we learn about how Jesus organizes and sends his church out in studying the book of Acts, but there's also a less obvious benefit to studying about the church, and it's this. The more, the more that we know about the church, the more we know about Jesus. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, has a very intimate relationship with the church. It calls the church his body. It calls the church his bride. Uh, the church, the Bible says, is Jesus' workmanship. And if you want to get to know an artist, then you study his art, right? And my prayer as we keep moving through Acts over the next couple months is that we would continue uh, to see not only what we're supposed to be doing as a church, but that we'd also more and more uh, be captivated by Jesus, because that's why we're here. As we look at the church, we're here to see Jesus. We want to know Jesus. And so that's what we're about um, as a church Now, today's message from Acts 18 is called Doing Work. And what we're going to see today is that Paul has been on uh, this second missionary journey uh, for over a year now. We're going to be studying today his last major stop on this journey in the city of Corinth. And and maybe you'll recall our last few weeks together, while God has blessed this journey and Paul's work in many ways, it's also been a hard journey, been very difficult. And we're going to be seeing today that sometimes serving God is just plain hard work. And uh, I came across this picture about ministry. Maybe you will resonate with it. It says, who said ministry was stressful? I'm 35 and I feel great. (laughs) And that's a great picture for a pastor, but you don't have to be a pastor to feel stressed out. If you have kids, that will do it. Amen? Amen. If you have a job and you have to uh, commute 15 plus hours every week, that will do it, right? Uh, We can all feel beaten down, burned out, stressed out. And the question is, what do you do? Where do you go in times of dryness, maybe times of discouragement or times of despondency? Does anybody in the Bible feel that way? And the answer is yes, a whole lot of people. I want you to see today that while Paul was in the city of Corinth, he needed to be encouraged by the Lord. And in this chapter, we're going to find Paul in a number of different places in his work. He's going to to be absorbed in his work. We're going to see that. But then we're going to see him weakened by trials and maybe even ready to quit and give it all up. But then the Lord comes and rejuvenates him. And the Lord is such good God to us to rejuvenate us when we're down. What do we know about this place where he's serving? Corinth was a very major city. Uh, Scholars estimate that as many as 750,000 people lived there. That wasn't very common uh, back in the first century. And the reason that Corinth was such a major city uh, is location, 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 location. 
I want to show you a map, and maybe you can kind of tell, but Corinth is on the southern part of Greece. It's right on this narrow uh, neck of land, just about three and a half miles uh, wide, and it separates north and south, the mainland of Greece to the north from the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the south. But also east to west, it is the the place where, where traders and, and business people wanted to cross to cut the distance between the Eastern Roman Empire and getting to Rome. And so it was just such an important place uh, for the civilization of that time. I'll explain more about that in a moment. Uh, one commentator uses three C's to describe Corinth to help us understand it. Uh, he says that Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, and as a seaport, it was a place that just drew people of all kinds from different races, different classes, different nationalities. It was just a melting pot of a city. Corinth was also a commercial center. As I've alluded, because of its location on this narrow isthmus of land, it was this important intersection, north to south, east to west, uh, for commerce traveling all around uh, the Roman Empire. And as such, it attracted people from all over the Roman Empire. People would travel to Corinth from all parts of the empire, this giant city, and then gathering these people from everywhere. It would then disperse these people as they did business in every direction. And if you think about that, you can see why Paul wanted to go there. Very strategic place for the spread of the gospel. And it was a place where the gospel was desperately needed because Corinth was also a very corrupt city. Uh, Corinth was the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and sex. And Aphrodite's temple actually loomed over the city. There was this 1,900-foot hill uh, that was above the city, and the temple was on top of that, this massive structure. And, and during the night, uh, thousands of prostitutes, temple prostitutes, would, would wander the streets, coming down from the temple into the city, uh, doing worship. That's what they thought of it as, doing business with sailors, uh, with other people passing through, with people of the city. And it was a city really dominated by sexual immorality and perversion. Uh, all across the ancient world, they would use the word that we might uh, translate as Corinthianize. They would talk about that word as kind of a symbol, a synonym for sexual immorality. Even people across the empire with pretty low moral standards thought that they had not sunk as low uh, as the Corinthians. And so we just continue to see as Paul is traveling on his missionary journeys, he is strategically targeting major cities of the ancient world. And maybe you can think about it like this. Last week we were in Athens and Paul moves from Athens, which was an intellectual center, kind of what we would see as a university town, maybe something like Boston or maybe something like Berkeley. And he goes to Corinth and Corinth was maybe a place like Las Vegas on steroids, I mean, it was, it was just known everywhere as this kind of a place. And I want us to think about this. In some ways, we can think and see that Corinth was a lot like our culture in America. A cosmopolitan. People come to our country from all over the world. Commercial. America is still the number one largest economic engine in the world. And corrupt. Uh, we live in a time, a morally unprecedented time in America where where moral values have been completely untethered from anything in God's word. People are drawing their own moral lines. They are living the way that they think is right, they think is good. In our culture today, and you know this, right, we celebrate. We celebrate all kinds of moral perversion. And it is the people who stand against those things that are considered to be enemies. See, Corinth 
uh, even like today, was a very hard place to live as a Christ follower. And if you read Paul's letters to these Corinthian believers, you will see that his letters are filled with exhortations for them to live pure and godly lives in the middle of this very immoral culture. Now, here's what we know about Paul as he gets to Corinth here at the beginning of Acts 18. Uh, We learn some things when he writes 1 Corinthians about 10 years later. In, In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, When I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he tells them something about how he ministered there. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And this is very important for us. How do you minister in a city like Corinth? Corinth, this city of great immorality, this city of gross idolatry, uh, this city of, of great intellect and great commerce. These were people who boasted. They thought they were, they were very, very special people. They hosted the Isthmian Games, which is sort of like the Olympics in that time. And what do we need to be? How do we need to minister in a culture that is sexually immoral, that is idolatrous, that is, that is arrogant? And we can learn from Paul. We want to resolve to know nothing as we reach out to our friends and neighbors except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We should not be afraid to tell our friends and our coworkers that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and for their sins and that they need to repent and give their lives to him. We should share that message with them. And if you think about it, this message is so important. Jesus is him crucified. Uh, sexual immorality, that's about self-indulgence. Well, the cross is about self-denial. Uh, the cross humbles arrogant people. And Paul understood this. He comes into Corinth and he knew this is what he needed to be preaching and speaking. Another thing we need to keep in mind is if we find ourselves feeling weak, if we find ourselves feeling timid or fearful, we have good news also from Paul. Paul discovered while he was in Corinth that weakness is the secret strength of God's servant. If you feel weak and discouraged, you're in a great place. God can use you. Do you understand that God doesn't need our strength? Do you understand that God doesn't need our cleverness? God uses us when we are weak and when we are dependent on him. We learn in weakness that his grace is sufficient for us. And so it's in the spirit thinking about all these things that we go to Corinth now. And I want to ask a question and try to answer it. How does God call us to do his work? And there's four things I want you to see. Now, the first thing that we do is, is we do work, God's work, uh, and we do whatever the mission requires. Whatever the mission requires. Look at verses one through four. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now keep in mind, as Luke tells us, we left Paul in Athens last week, and he travels, it's only 50 or 60 miles to the city of Corinth, But I want you to keep this in mind. We know, scholars say, that between A.D. 49 and 52, during that time frame, Paul walked approximately 2,000 miles by foot. He also sailed about 1,000 miles by boat. Now, this is crazy. And and just remember this. This is a nearly 50-year-old man who in that time 
50 years old was very, 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 very old. Now today, you know, 50 is like the new 20s. That's what I tell myself. (laughs) And I don't know why you're laughing. Um, But back then, this is a very elderly person, and he's walking. I I looked this up. He's walking the equivalent of the distance from Tracy to St. Louis. And that's not all he's doing. He's walking that in the middle of stopping and working and, and getting beaten up and getting stoned and getting thrown into the ocean and all kinds of other things. And he's doing all of this for one reason, just to tell people about Jesus. We need to keep in mind as we read Paul's missionary journeys, Paul is not flying first class. He is not chilling out in the airport lounge, writing sermons on his Mac. See, for Paul... Doing work for God meant doing whatever the mission required. I want to point out to you a couple of ways that he does this. Uh, The first way I want to just talk about is teamwork. Paul was not a rugged individualist. Paul worked with others. Paul often said, I need others. And we all do. And a lot of us don't like to admit that. I want to help you with that right now. I want you to say, I need others. You can elbow the person next to you if they didn't say that. We need other people, and some of us like to play like we don't need other people, and we do that to our own hurt. It damages us because we're not part of a team. Now, in Corinth, what Paul does is he makes some new friends. Aquila and Priscilla, this wonderful couple, uh, we see that they not only shared his tent-making trade, but they opened their home to to him. Um, we, We can learn a lot from them. They have a lot in common with Paul. They're Jewish like he is. They're tent makers like he is. It's possible, uh, the language here seems to indicate that they owned a tent making business and they employed Paul. That seems to be what we're being told here. And they're very interesting people. Aquila, we are told, was a native of Pontus. That's up around the Black Sea in the northern part of modern day Turkey. Uh, They came to Corinth from Rome. It says they they were expelled by the emperor uh, Claudius. And we have some historical records that tell us during Claudius's reign, there was a Roman historian named Suetonius. I'm sure several of you were reading Suetonius this last week. And uh, he says in one of his accounts, there was a disturbance in Rome, uh, and there was disturbance over a man named Crestus. And so Claudius expelled the Jews. Well, Crestus is, scholars believe, another spelling of Christus or Jesus Christ. And so what likely happened is what we've been seeing in the book of Acts all through the book Some Christians had made it to Rome. They had shared the gospel with some Jewish people. Some Jewish people had received Christ. And there were other Jewish people who didn't like it, and they had a fight. You know this story, right? We've been seeing it all through the book of Acts. And Claudius, the emperor, this disturbance got so bad that the emperor Claudius said, ain't nobody got time for that, and he kicked them out. (laughs) He just kicked them out and wanted them to leave. And so now uh, these two, this couple, Uh, are in Corinth, and they're making tents. Uh, They are obviously uh, savvy business people, people who can go from city to city and then set up shop. And here's what I want you to notice about them. They are very great models for what it means to be a church member. You know, sometimes I think it probably happens for you. You read about the Apostle Paul, you see how he lived, and he's this heroic figure, the mighty Apostle Paul, and you admire that, but you think to yourself, right, I I could never do that. Well, Priscilla and Aquila are just ordinary church members, ordinary Christ followers, giving their lives to the mission of Jesus, working a normal job just like you do. 
I want you to notice five things about them real quickly. Uh, First of all, it seems that they had a solid marriage. Uh, Each time that they are mentioned, they're mentioned together. They work as a team. It's like Paul really couldn't think of one of them without mentioning the other. Secondly, it seems that Priscilla had remarkable influence. Now, they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and four of those times, Priscilla is mentioned first. And this likely indicates that her ministry stood out in some way. It's not meant to diminish Aquila. It doesn't mean he wasn't an important leader. I'm sure that she would defend her man, and she would have sang, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. You know, salt and pepper. And this just shows us that the mission of the church in Acts wasn't a male-dominated movement. It, it, women played a huge role in advancing the mission. And then third, we see they had mobility. Uh, Aquila's from Pontus, and they go to Rome, and they get kicked out, and they go to Corinth, and then later Paul is going to take them to Ephesus and drop them off, and eventually we know they return to Rome, but then from there they return back uh, to Ephesus. And this just tells us that Aquila and Priscilla were people who said to God, God, where do you want us to go? We'll go. They did not say, Lord, I'll go anywhere as long as it's in California, preferably near the beach. (laughs) They didn't say, Lord, I'm yours. All I have, everything about me, as long as you keep me within a 150-mile radius of my family, we should approach God's will like they did. I think that they were people who said to the Lord, Lord, our yes is on the table. Our lives are a blank check. You fill it in. We'll go. And I think it's true that their vocation likely helped make their mobility possible. Not every job does. But it was ultimately, I believe, their commitment to following Jesus that caused them to be able to go from city to city. And I know that God doesn't have a life like that for everyone, but he does for some, and he wants all of us to be willing to do whatever he does, tells us to do, to be open to go wherever he sends us. Fourth, they had Christ-centered passion. Christ-centered passion. What motivated them in their lives was Jesus. There's an interesting uh, little passage in Romans 16, it's verses 3 through 5. And in those verses, Paul calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He says, they risk their lives for me. Paul says, all the churches are grateful for them. And then he says, greet also the church that meets at their house. So these, these, this, this couple, they are workers in Christ Jesus, whether they are making tents or opening their homes, they work in and through and for Jesus. And you may be here today and you work in the tech industry or you work in medicine or you work in education or some other field. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, you ultimately work in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? See, we're to do excellent work, whatever we do. But ultimately, whatever we do, we are doing that work for the Lord. And don't miss what Paul says about their importance. He says, all the churches were grateful for this couple. This couple lay people who just work regular jobs because of their passion for Christ. The fifth thing we see is that they were hospitable. They had a great sense of hospitality. We just see whenever they're mentioned in Scripture, they are opening up their home to others like they did for Paul in Corinth. Uh, You read 1 Corinthians 16, it talks about the church in their house. You read Romans 16, talks about the 
church in their house. At the end of chapter 18 here in Acts, they're going to be instructing a man named Apollos in their house. And it just tells us that God wants us to use what he's given us for his kingdom and for his glory. So if you have a house, and if you think it's your house, you're wrong. It's God's house. God has given it to you. You're a steward of that, and he wants you to use it for him. And I, I think in the culture in which we live today, and we talked about our postmodern culture last week, we need to understand that more and more and more, the role of hospitality is going to be necessary for us to connect with people. They're not just going to hear our words. They're going to want to see our deeds. They're going to be welcomed into our lives before they'll hear the message we have to share with them. And a huge part of evangelism will be hospitality. We cannot be people who say, I'm too busy or I need my alone time and, and allow those kinds of thoughts to keep us from reaching out to the people that are around us. I read someone say this week that as Christians, and we think about hospitality, we need to remember the grace of the one who welcomes us into God's family and who is preparing a house for us. Jesus has opened his house to us. If we're going to be like him, we need to open our homes to other people, find ways to do that. And so part of Paul's doing whatever the mission requires was working with a team. But also, I just want to highlight Paul's hard work. He just was a hard worker. Paul never misses a chance to preach. He's always writing letters to churches at night. And oh, by the way, during the day, he's making tents. I mean, this is just incredible. Uh, now, this word tent maker could be translated leather worker. And so Paul may have made many different kinds of leather products with his skill. And so we just see him doing whatever it takes. He works with his mind. He works with his hands. He writes and he, he tells churches, it's okay to pay pastors. And to that I say, amen. <laughs> Paul says it's a good and honorable thing to pay pastors. He says you'll probably get more work out of a pastor if you do. But Paul sometimes refused to take pay from churches to prevent people from thinking that he was preaching for money. And he gives us this model of working during the day and preaching as he could. And that's, that's how he starts here in Corinth in Acts 18. So he's going on Sabbath to the synagogues to teach and reason and persuade. During the week, as he's making tents and doing work, I'm sure he's talking to anyone he can, doing the same things, reasoning with people, seeking to persuade them, telling them they need to repent and trust in Jesus. And I just want you to see, you cannot do this unless you're willing to work hard. Paul was not effective merely because he was a gifted teacher. But by God's grace, he also worked extremely hard. And this just reminds us the mission of the church only advances when people are working. And that means I have to ask you, are you working for the Lord? We all have different roles to play. But if you are a follower of Christ, Part of what that means is to work for the Lord. And if we're not working for the Lord, we are failing to do part of what he's called every single one of us to do. Again, keep in mind Paul. <laughs> I mean, Paul has been beaten up in almost every city. And he's still working hard. And he's still preaching and reasoning and persuading. It's like, when does he sleep? Um, I read this week that uh, the great theologian Kevin Durant uh, once said... Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. And that's true. And Paul is a worker. And Paul knew, knew that sometimes you just have to grind. 
Sometimes you have to rest, yes. But most days it's hard work. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, in our attempt as, as Christ followers to fulfill the Great Commission in, in the world of, of, of missions, international missions, uh, what is called tent making or bivocational ministry where people work kind of a, a, a regular job and also serve as missionaries is becoming increasingly important. In the last few years, our International Mission Board uh, has issued repeated calls for more business people and retirees to enter the mission field. Why? We don't have enough money to fund all the people who need to go. And so we need people who can go and who can work a job and serve where they are, and then do mission work as part of, of, of their, their job. The call is to send limitless missionaries by sending people who can work in business or in education or, or in medicine. We also, as part of that, there are increasingly uh, com- uh, countries that are closed to people who are missionaries, and so they won't let you in if that's what you're coming to do. But if you're a business person or if you're a teacher, They'll let you in. And once you're in, then you can do what God calls you to do. I read an article in one of my commentaries this week uh, where uh, a woman named Ruth Simmons uh, talked about how people are creatively using their vocations to get the gospel message into hard-to-enter countries. She talked about a tentmaker couple who translated the entire New Testament for over 5 million Muslims while he did university teaching and she tutored people in English. They talked, she talked about a science teacher who evangelized his students in rural Kenya, preaching every third Sunday in a local church. There was a symphony violinist in Singapore who had Bible studies with fellow musicians. There was a faculty person and an engineer who set up a Christian bookstore in an Arab Gulf country just to share the gospel. And this all reminds us, whoever we are, wherever we are, all Christians should be considering how we can leverage our work, our vocation for the good of the nations, for the sake of the Great Commission. So we do whatever the mission requires. But secondly, uh, you do work when there's opposition and when there's blessing. You know, if anything, Paul's example shows us that we shouldn't expect blessing and open doors and abundant fruit all the time. We should expect that opposition will be part of working in God's kingdom. Anybody want to say amen on that one? We say amen, but we don't want to, right? We don't like that, but it's true. Interestingly enough, in the next verses, we see Paul experiencing blessing first. Look at verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And so this is telling us that Paul shifts into full-time ministry, that something happens. What changes? Well, we know that the Macedonians were known for generosity, and it seems that when these brothers show up, they brought money. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 says they came with an encouraging report and also with a gift. Both of those things would have encouraged Paul. And this tells us that generosity enables devotion and encourages God's servants. Paul can now put the tents down for a while. He can give all his attention to the word. And he's later on going to write to the Philippians who were known for their generosity. He's going to say, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into partnership with me except you. So Paul is now fully funded. And here's what I want you to see from that. It's just a reminder that it takes the whole body of Christ to take the gospel to the whole world. 
all of us have a role to play. The Macedonians don't just say, you know, let Paul do the mission. There were people in Philippi, maybe like Lydia, the leader who said, I wonder how Paul's doing down there. He needs our help. He needs to be able to focus full time on the mission. Let's take up a collection and send it to him. And it just reminds us every part of the body is necessary. I want to put a pastoral word in here for us here at Southwinds because, you know, in the next few months, we're going to enter into summer and we're not always going to be here all the time. And Things happen in the summertime that don't happen at other times of the year, like we forget to be faithful in certain parts of our discipleship. And as we go into the summer and as we get closer and closer to the completion of our new auditorium, we will need increased faithfulness and generosity, not a let up. It's not the time to let up or ease up. It is the time for us to fan the flame. You say, well, I'm kind of tight right now. Well, guess what? Many of those Macedonians, most of them, we're told, were poor. They were impoverished people, and yet they were generous. They were people who said, you know what? We don't have much, but we need to give so the mission can continue. (laughs) I think they kind of said to Paul, Paul, you know what? You keep getting beat up, and we'll pay for it. (laughs) And so whatever your vocation, you should say, how can I support the mission? Once again, it takes the whole body of Christ to take the gospel to the whole world. We are all part of this. So Paul experiences some blessing, but that doesn't last forever. Following the blessing comes opposition. And Paul is doing what he's been doing. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And guess what? Just like today, people back then didn't like that message. Have you noticed that? You say, here is the way to salvation. His name is Jesus. A lot of people don't like that. You're going to get opposed. Verse 6 says, But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul is telling everyone, Jesus is the Messiah, and some people hate him. Some people slander and oppose him. What is our job in evangelism? Be reminded, our job is just to tell people. Our job is not to convert them. Our job is not to win arguments. Our job is to tell people and trust God to save people. We can't make people repent. So we tell, and sometimes, sometimes we may need to move on. And that's what Paul does here. He says, you've heard enough. I'm going to keep working, and he moves on. That's what we see next in verses 7 and 8. Luke writes, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So Paul, he gets kicked out of the synagogue. I love this. He says, Where do I go? I know. I'll go next door. Paul was a little ornery sometimes, I think. He just moves next door. And there's a guy there who owns a home. His name is Titius Justice. He was a God-feared. This means he was a Gentile who was seeking the God of the Jewish people, the Old Testament God uh, that we know. He's not a Christian yet. He opens his house to Paul. And Paul goes there. Paul starts preaching from that base. And Paul has a convert. We're told about a convert. His name is Crispus. Isn't that a great name? Crispus. I I was reading some ancient historical documents this week that tell us his last name was Cream. That's 
Christmas cream. His friends called him Crispy. Um, now, who was he? He was the synagogue ruler. I think he brought the donuts. You need somebody like that in church. And what happens? Well, Luke says he believed in the Lord. And on top of that, his entire household believes. And so this little church is getting planted. And it's getting planted in this immoral, idolatrous, arrogant culture. Paul preaching Jesus and the cross. And here is Crispus, synagogue ruler. And he's now a believer. This would be like an, a, a Muslim imam or a Jewish rabbi becoming a believer. It's such an enormous thing. And please be reminded, it is so easy today, isn't it, to watch the news and get so discouraged about all that's going on in our culture. It's so easy for us to find ourselves thinking God really isn't working, but he is always working. God never stops working. He is always working. Many of the Corinthians, many who heard him believed. See, Paul is now seeing fruit. So God wants us to do work when there's opposition and when there's blessing. And that brings us to the third insight. You, you do work when you think you can't keep going. Look at verses 9 and 10. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, if you're just reading along in this chapter, this might seem sort of strange. Paul just seems to go from this season of, of fruitfulness and blessing right into this time of weakness and fear. I mean, we've just heard the synagogue ruler has come to faith. The new church is growing. That spiritual fruit is ripening and it's being harvested. And now Paul is discouraged. And you wonder why. Was Paul ready to quit? Was Paul burned out? You know, this happens to people in ministry. And sometimes when you're exhausted and beaten up and worn down, sometimes you're just too tired to even enjoy God's blessings. And it's very easy for us to read Acts and kind of gloss over what's really going on here. We should never think that Paul liked being criticized or Paul liked being beaten with rods or being stoned with rocks. He was a human being. And we don't know exactly what was going on here. But I do know that I felt like that sometimes. And I'm confident you have too. Maybe it was just the oppression of the city itself. I mean, everywhere he was looking, it was just persistent evil. Paul had never really been in a place as immoral probably as this one. Maybe all these different factors are pressing in on Paul. We, we don't know the specific causes, but we do see in these verses the solution. And if you have ever been in a season of weakness, whether spiritually or physically, you're dry, you're depleted. If you've ever been in a season of fear and timidity, and I want to tell you right now, you can find hope where Paul finds hope. You say, how do I do that? Let me tell you. You can write this down. We fight fear and weakness with God's promises. God rejuvenates us as we immerse ourselves in his promises. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus speaks these words to Paul. Paul receives this vision, and he might read words like these and think, I wish I could have a vision, but here's the good news. You have these words in God's word, they're for you. You don't need a vision. 
These words are for you. How did Paul get up? How did Paul preach and stay? We're about to read for another year and a half. Well, he meditated deeply on the promises of Jesus. And that's what we have to do. I want to tell you, please listen to me right now. If you are weak and discouraged and dry, you do not need to pull away from reading God's word. You need to immerse yourself in it. If you are weak and discouraged and dry, you do not need to pull yourself away from community, from fellowship, from your small group. You need to immerse yourself in it. And that is exactly what we are tempted to do, right? Can we talk? Can we be honest with each other? When you're discouraged, isn't the thing you most often tend to do is stop reading God's word? I don't feel like it. When you're discouraged, don't you tend to think, I don't want to go to small group. I don't feel like going to church. We listen to our feelings. Let me tell you something. All too often, some of you don't know this, you need to hear this, your feelings are stupid. (laughs) Some of you have never considered that thought. I'm telling you as your pastor because I love you, you have stupid feelings. You should not listen to your feelings. When you're drowned, when you're dry, when you're discouraged... More than ever, you need the Word of God. More than ever, you need to be with the people of God. Amen? Amen. And that's what Jesus is encouraging Paul to do. Uh, What does he say to him? Well, he tells him first, don't be afraid. And and this is kind of, I think it's a very gentle rebuke here. Uh, We, I think, tend to think Paul was never afraid, but he was He needs encouragement. I mean, if you've been beaten to within an inch of your life and you're wondering if that's going to happen again, would you be afraid? I would. But Paul receives this encouragement. Jesus then says, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And, you know, in our culture today, we can feel so intimidated. We don't think we can speak. And and yet the Lord says to us, go on speaking. Don't be silent. And he doesn't tell Paul to keep on speaking because he was good at it. I mean, he was good at it, but that's not why Jesus says to do it. He doesn't tell Paul to go on speaking because he has this impressive, commanding, charismatic, physical presence. I mean, we know from 2 Corinthians 10.10 that the Corinthians didn't think that of Paul. You can read that verse sometimes. This is a little bit of a paraphrase. But they said to Paul, you know, Paul, your letters are very powerful, but when you show up, you look like Danny DeVito. And see, Paul, Paul was afraid sometimes. How will he not be afraid? How will he keep on speaking to this immoral, idolatrous culture? Once again, we see that Jesus delights to use weak people, and he gives people like Paul and us promise. There's three promises I want you to write down. The first is the promise of God's presence. Jesus says to Paul, here's why you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you. If you've ever paid attention to the Bible as you're reading it and you come across the commands, don't be afraid, that command, don't be afraid, as it's repeated through the Bible, all too often you will find next to that command this phrase, I'm with you. In fact, I want to tell you, this is an application point for some of you. All of you should do this. Some of you really need to do this. I want you to write down in your notes right now, somewhere where you'll see it after you leave today, those three words, I'm with you. You need to hear that. I'm with you, Jesus says to you today. He never leaves or forsakes us. That's why we don't need to be afraid. And so he gives that promise to Paul, and we have been given that promise to Paul. That's why we can speak. That's how we can speak. We don't have to be afraid. God is with us. And then Jesus gives Paul a second promise. 
And it's a special particular promise. It's the, the promise of God's protection. He says, Paul, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, I want to be clear on this. This is a promise for Paul in this particular situation. It's only in the city of Corinth. In other cities where Paul was, he is attacked and he is harmed. God doesn't always give him this promise, but he does here. And we will see in Corinth that he is untouched because Jesus keeps his promises. Now, we may not always in our lives have this particular promise, but we do have promises like Romans 8, 28. We can live our lives no matter what happens, knowing that whatever happens in our lives, God is working all things together for our good, that nothing will befall us ever that hasn't passed through God's hands, that God has us. Therefore, we can live with confidence that he's protecting us. And then Jesus gives a third promise. It's the promise of God's sovereignty and salvation. Did you notice that little phrase? Kind of strange. Jesus says, I have many people in this city. And what this simply means is that there are people in Corinth who will come to faith as Paul preaches. That fruit will come as Paul is faithful. What a massive assurance that is to Paul and to us to know that it is not all up to us, to know that God is always at work in people's hearts. And I want to tell you to you, you should think like this. There are people in this city of Tracy, this city of Mountain House, this city of Lathrop, Jesus has them. They don't know it yet, but they're going to come to him. And there are people on your street. And you don't know it yet, and they don't know it yet, but Jesus has already said, I have them too. There are people in your family, and they don't know it yet, but they're going to come. So you need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. God is going to work. God keeps his promises. And this undergirds Paul, and Paul decides to stay. It's the longest period of time he stayed anywhere up to this point. Year and a half teaching the word of God. Let me show you the last way I want you to see that he does, that we are to do work. We are to do work for as long as God has work for us to do. You do work for as long as God has work for you to do. Verse 11, it says, So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And that is what, that is what these crazy Corinthians need. You say, why do you call them that? Well, I've been telling you, it's a crazy culture, and these people get converted out of this crazy culture. And if you read 1 Corinthians, I'm, I'm just serious. These people are like nuts. And I understand that because I'm your pastor, and... Uh, <laughs> But these people are like, they're, read 1 Corinthians. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Might I suggest to you, you have an alcohol problem if you're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. <laughs> you know, praise Jesus. Give me another. I love communion. I'm going to come to all three services. <laughs> I mean, you have a problem. You're getting hammered at the Lord's table. That's not good. They're sleeping around within the church. We, we read there's one guy sleeping with his stepmom. Ew. Um, they're, they're, these are people converted out of prostitution. It's just a wild place, and a lot of them haven't learned yet. They don't know all the things that need to know. So what do these wild uh, converted people need? They need teaching, and that's what they get. They need to be grounded in the Word, and that's what Paul does. He stays, and actually even a year and a half is not enough. That's why Paul has to write what he writes in the letters later. But this is where you start. And then next, I want you to see, we, we, we see this wonderful fulfillment 
of the promise that Jesus made when he said, no one will attack you and harm you. Well, the Jews try to attack and harm Paul. Watch what happens, verse 12 and following. It's a great illustration of how Jesus keeps his promises. It says in verse 12, while, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Paraphrase, ain't nobody got time for this. <laughs> and so in verse 16, so he had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Here's the main point I want you to see. Jesus is right here fulfilling his promise to Paul. And it's fulfilled in a very practical, very realistic way. Sometimes, sometimes the Lord delivers Paul through miracles, but here it's through a pagan judge who says, I'm not going to deal with that. Paul is untouched. Now, unfortunately, poor Sosthenes did not have this promise. Uh, but God keeps his word to Paul. I want you to see here in this whole passage that Paul is giving us a profile of what it looks like to do God's work, to trust in the Lord no matter what, when we're up, when we're down, when things are working, when they don't seem to be working, when we're weak, when we're strong. And Paul stays. Uh, we're, we're told that he stays. Uh, um, in verse uh, 18, we're told that he stays many days longer. This may mean that he stayed longer than a year and a half. Uh, he had been ready to quit, ready to tap out, ready to go home, but encouraged by the Lord, he keeps working. Now, these last verses I want to read give us kind of this little itinerary of what happens, and you need to see in this, this is the wrap-up of the second missionary journey. Luke says, uh, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Count Rhea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with him, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Now, Luke's kind of setting us up for what's going to come next. We'll start seeing this next week. We're going to launch into the third missionary journey. Paul takes this brief stop in Ephesus. He can't stay long because he's trying to get back to Jerusalem uh, he's under this vow. We don't know exactly what it's about, but it's probably related to some way he wants to encourage the Jews back in Jerusalem that he hasn't abandoned everything about his Jewishness, that he's still with them. And Paul says, I'm going to come back if God wills. And then in verse 22, it says, when he lands at Caesarea, he went up, and this means he goes up to Jerusalem, and he greeted the church, and then he went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So I'm going to show you a map that kind of ties off uh, where Paul is going uh, at the end of his journey. We don't have Jerusalem on this map, but Paul goes there and then he makes his way back to Antioch. And this is drawing uh, the second uh, missionary journey uh, to a conclusion. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn to do God's work in all seasons of life, however we feel, whether good or bad, up or down, successful or not successful. And we do this by looking to God's promises we trust in God's promises to us. 
And we can do this. Don't forget this. Even in a culture like Corinth, we can do this even in a place where the vast majority of people may be opposed to what we believe and what we trust in. We can do this as Paul did it, trusting, knowing that God has people in our city, that God is working in the hearts of people, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God has called you, God has called me, God, every one of us to be doing his work. And I just want to leave you with this question. Are you? Ask yourself, am I doing God's work? Am I doing what God has called me to do? Am I serving him faithfully? And then when God speaks to you and answers that question, will you obey? Will you do whatever he tells you to do? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Before we do, I want uh, us to pray together. And so if you'll bow your heads, uh, we'll go before the Lord. Prepare your heart uh, for celebrating the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your word, and we we thank you for uh, the promises that we have in Scripture. God, we thank you for the honesty of the Bible that shows us um, not just the triumphs of great uh, saints of yours, but also their weaknesses, how they overcame. And Lord, I want to pray especially for every discouraged Christ follower here today. Lord, I pray that your presence and your promises would rejuvenate them. Lord, I pray that they would see that there's still great hope and, and that you're going to get them back up on their feet. And so, Lord, open their mouths. Grant them a new sense of joy and passion for your mission. Give this to all of us, Father, we ask. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his good name. And all of God's people together say,